what was Luna Pads and is now Isle has always been an activist brand. It has never been otherwise. It's our comfort zone. This is who we are. This is what we do. We have never been part of the status quo. We have never tried to do something mainstream. And so in a way, it's like we're already in our sweet spot. The current climate of change and the current issues and challenges being presented to us and opportunities are things that we're really excited about and pretty comfortable with. Welcome to SheEO.World, a podcast about redesigning the world. I'm your host, Vicki Saunders. In each episode, you'll hear from SheEO Venture founders, women who are working on the world's to-do list. These innovative business leaders are solving some of the major challenges of our times. Please sit back and be prepared to be inspired. Welcome everyone to the SheEO.World podcast. I am here today with two of our very first ventures from the beginning of SheEO. So excited about two women from the same venture. Today I have Madeline and Suzanne with us from Isle, previously known as Lunapads, absolute pioneers in the menstrual health space. And oh, what a time we are in you two. Indeed we are. It is absolutely incredible. Your space, you created this space. You were there at the very beginning before it was a space. Talk about systems change and doing the hard work. So let's have a little chat about what's changed in the space of menstrual health since you started. Small question. Mad, take it away. Well, it's a thing. So I think <laughs> for starters, right, like people are semi-literate in it now, whereas when I started out in the early 90s paying attention to it and developing products and stuff, there wasn't the language of, you know, menstrual equity was not, a, there was no language for that. There was no language around period poverty. People actively tried to shut down conversations around menstruation. It wasn't contextualized around any kind of human rights, health issues, that type of thing. Like it was just this, it was really hard, honestly. Like I don't, I used to always joke and say, oh, I should have gone into the chocolate business because then, you know, people would know what it was and why they like it or whatever, because instead of having to really push an uphill battle in, but in the last, I would say five or six years, we've seen a, just a massive sea change and some really fantastic and, and very questionable leaders emerge as well. And this, it just feels like it's time for not just a conversation and for that to change, but I mean, the whole context products and just political issues and, and everything about it. So it's been, for me, as someone who's got, you know, 25 year plus history to look at how it's changed, it feels seismic. And yet for so many years, it was like pushing up against a brick wall, but then all of a sudden all the bricks just sort of fell. So it's really exciting. Suzanne, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I share that long history with you, Madeline. And I think what is exciting about now is that it feels revitalized. It feels like our time. And yes, we were the OG of reusable period care products, but we're really leveraging that kind of pioneer background that we have to be able to use our voice to say, we've seen this for a long time and we're equally outraged and we're going to use the position of privilege, power, and influence that we have to shout even louder than we have been in the past. And that to me is what feels exciting. Okay. So we're in like such an interesting time. We've got COVID happening. We've got racial uprising. Woohoo. Black Lives Matter. We have this whole gender something where that's going to maybe like not having a gender in the future or like who knows what, where we're going, right? It's just everything. Wow. Okay. So a few trends to deal with in the middle of your business. 
Oh, and then, well, let's just rebrand while we're there. <laughs> rebrand as well. And so like, I love you too. You're both just like in it. Okay, bring it. What else could possibly happen? Cancel, cancel, cancel. So I wonder as you sort of look out in the landscape towards, you know, with all these trends going on, what's your pathway through this? Where are you taking us? Where is your company? Like, where do you see your company sitting in the, all of these different trends that are happening right now? Yeah, I, could I just start just to, to go back again to the beginning, like just to say, you know, um, from a legacy piece, like Luna Pads, what was Luna Pads and is now Isle, has always been an activist brand. It has never been otherwise. Like, you know, I have a degree in women's studies and got activism feminist activist as a university student. And that's kind of my leadership came from that place and becoming an entrepreneur also came from that place. So I think what we're seeing today, and Suzanne can speak to our current initiatives, but it's our comfort zone. This is who we are. This is what we do. We have never been part of the status quo. We have never tried to do something mainstream. And so in a way, it's like we're already in our sweet spot. The current climate of change and the current issues and challenges being presented to us and opportunities are things that we're really excited about and pretty comfortable with. So it's, it's really good. What I will add to that is it's a very heavy and hard time as well, Vicki. And we are also acknowledging that we have a lot of our own unlearning to do and a lot of listening to do being humble and being as supportive as possible. So this whole intersection of COVID and race and gender, it's all coming together. We are working our way through it with some excitement, but a lot of angst because we don't want to make mistakes, but we also want to be bold and we also want to be leaders. What I'm really proud of is that we're made up of a team of fierce intersectional feminists who want to break down those barriers and want to learn. We're being very introspective and saying, okay, we need to take all these workshops and classes and have conversations and we need to stretch ourselves by putting money in the places that need it. And it's places that are Black voices and Indigenous voices and not presupposing that we have the answers. So it's a very exciting and and hard and heavy time, I would say. And we feel fairly well equipped to push forward and be leaders because we have the genuine capability of having that record of being good values-based mindful folks, because we're not new to the game. We're not this scrappy startup that's like, here, let me jump in and assume that I'm going to just destroy everything. And reinvent things. It's like, no, we're here to listen and learn from the history of folks who have had, who've been doing this work for so long, including ourselves, and not to presuppose that we're, we're the experts. Are you seeing a ton of new entrants to this space that you're in? There definitely is a lot of new entrants to the space and they're doing some amazing work and they've come up with some amazing technology and, and great ideas. But a lot of them are learning about the fact that they need to also remember all the hard work that has been done by people in the past and people who are still maybe don't have the loud megaphone. You know, Madeline and I are observing people who are fairly new to the space that are making some missteps and they're being, what's great about it now is they're being really called on it. Some of them may have shown up in the past five years and they're getting all this interesting kind of traditional limelight 
And some of us who are kind of observing going, hmm, that's interesting. Like they're saying that they're the first to do X, Y, or Z when they haven't been. Right now they're being called out and saying, you know what? You have not been really inclusive and genuine in, in how you've approached this and we're asking you to do better. It's great because they're taking that challenge and saying, yeah, I need to do better. You both sort of mentioned the concept of voice. I heard this great word the other day, which I haven't heard before for a long time, comportment, how you carry yourself and how you bring yourself into conversations. And so how your brand actually brings yourself in beyond just the voice, but living the values. I've been thinking a lot about this in the context of CEO. Like everyone would say, what is the one line or what is the one voice of your brand? Is that a thing anymore? Having one voice? I think that has, it's very old school to say that you have one voice. I feel like saying you have one voice assumes that your voice is the right one and the perfect one and that everyone should follow you as the guru. Again, I will say that what's happening right now is really forcing people to look inward and listen and not be the most vocal with the megaphone and be humble. So I don't subscribe to the one voice. And I think that things are moving too quickly to say that that one voice or that one avatar of who your customer is and that one brand expression of who you are is, is kind of limiting. On this note, the ch- part of the challenge to this... So I'm a, a single founder this time. I've been a co-founder in everything else I've done, but this time a single founder. And so you two have a very unique partnership. So working together is just so amazing as an entrepreneur. Uh, it's like such a great thing. And so can you talk a little bit about what's worked over the years in building your partnerships? I think this is a lot of female founders have a partner to get them off the ground and maybe have some insights for us there. Well, I just for clarity's sake, so everybody, you know, folks who may be new to oil understand like Suzanne is the CEO of the company, like a hundred percent, this is her show and she's running it. And I act in an advisory capacity and a support capacity. I do various special projects and speaking events and whatever, but I'm not, I'm not the boss. She is the boss. And I think that's part of what is awesome. Like it took us a long time to get there, but over the years, it just became clear that for the company to really grow, it she just had a better skill set and a better experience and her finance background. And and I felt really good about that. Like I was just like, yeah, you know, if you can be, I think we get really caught up in ego and power struggles and that kind of stuff sometimes. But I feel like in, a, in the case of our relationship, it was just super clear. And the foundation of everything is around trust. Like I don't, I don't and I don't question my ability and the value I bring. Like, okay, I do sometimes, but I think it's really positive. And I think the way that we maintain that is by just being really clear in our communication with one another and just holding one another very, very respectfully and very clearly. So, you know, we're in touch all the time, but part of what makes it work is the clarity that this is at the end of the day, it's her call and she's running the show. But you weren't always. Did you have a co-CEO before? back in the day? Yeah, we did. Well, it, we did for a long time, but it was more like she was, were the CFO and the co-CEO sort of had. And, you know, I would help with the strategic stuff. But what became clear to me over time was that especially as we got deeper and deeper and deeper into the e-com and digital marketing kind of worlds, like, and that was our entire business model. It's like, ah, I don't live there. I don't love it. I don't, I don't understand this. And I, I'm not the right person for this job. I would say it kind of evolved as the company, you know, the strategy evolved and that just became less compatible with my personal skill set. 
And also it was hard, you know, when the staff got to be bigger to basically be answering to two people who are quite different. Like if somebody would come to say, oh, hey, Madeline, what should I do about this or whatever, that might, I might give them a very different answer than what Suzanne gave them. And I think that that's just kind of, it was inefficient, I would say. In the first, say, 10, maybe almost 15 years, the co-leadership also worked though, which I think really speaks volumes to the relationship Madeline and I have. It worked because we had a mutual amount of respect and integrity for each other that it never clashed. And we always knew because of the communication channels that we had, and they were so open, we always knew where somebody else was going to lead and where somebody else was going to step back. When partnerships go wrong is when there is that clash of like, no, this is my turf and this is my turf. And we just never had that. And in the times that there was a bit of a clash, we always talked about it pretty much within 24 hours. So my advice to co-founders is like, make sure you are talking very regularly and you're having conversations about ego and being in relationship and what is and isn't working. And I think that's why it worked for so long for Madeline and I, is we were always, always willing to have those conversations. And we kept the relationship above the professional side of things. It's like, we cared about each other more than we cared about the business. And that in turn made sure the business was successful. Yeah, that's a huge point. Yeah, that's a good one. Question around, so what do you do? What products do you have? (laughs) And how has that evolved over time? Tell us a little bit about IL. What have you got going on these days? What are the products and services? Yeah, so we rebranded in March of 2020, the same week that COVID became a worldwide pandemic. And when we rebranded, it was an opportunity for us to provide a fresh expression of what we stand for, which was to be the best place in the world for someone to have their period, the period aisle. And so the products that we provide are products which are reusable and sustainable and better for the body and better for the environment. So there are cloth pads that wrap around your own underwear and replace disposable pads and tampons. It's period underwear that work like regular underwear, but they're absorbent. And menstrual cups that work like a tampon, they're inserted and they're reusable because they're made of a medical grade silicone, which makes them much more comfortable and I would argue safer because they're not being abrasive and they're not absorbing blood like a tampon would. So essentially products that are really mindfully and carefully designed to give the user a better experience of their period and designed with textiles and materials that are much more sustainable so that they're easier on the environment and someone who is really caring about their footprint and their climate impact is using products that they know has been really designed to consider those factors. Yeah, and just going back, like you asked about how they had changed over time, any other product I can think of that's 25 plus years old, like there have been significant design upgrades and fabric technology has also changed enormously since we've been making them. And, but you know, what's cool is the one, one thing that hasn't changed is that the pads, what used to be known as Luna pads and are now aisle pads are still made right here in Vancouver. That is, in fact, I was at one of the factories we work with this morning and checking in and this is, it's a family relationship. These are people that we've known for so, so long as kind of 
low tech as that sounds and sort of whatever, there's something really, really wonderful about it. And I'm really personally very, very proud of that. I think, you know, yes, there are a lot of good reasons to have products made elsewhere. And in the case of the underwear, we can talk about that story and that's true and good, but I'm very proud that our pads are still made right here in Vancouver and our menstrual cups are made in Canada as well. They're made in Ontario. And so we're really trying to do as much as we can with, you know, made in Canada and local production too. So, and that's been consistent over time. Has there been a change in, well, I mean, your products have changed, I guess there wasn't a cup before. What is the breakdown in terms of pads to cups to period underwear in terms of like the percentage of, you know, your customers? Yeah. So I would say pads and underwear are about 50, 50 right now cups are just starting to kind of rise again because we only launched the cup in March when we rebranded. The challenge with cups is that there's a lot of cups already out there. So we're just trying to kind of break new ground. But I think what we're doing with cups is going after a customer who maybe sees aisle for the first time and says, oh, now I've got a choice of all three types of products. What will I choose? So I think based on our history, it's about 50-50 underwear and pads, but cups is starting to grow. And is there a demographic breakdown with that too? Like younger ones doing something different or not really? Um, no, I don't think so. No, I don't have any data that would suggest that different age groups are do, using different products. It's, it's really a very, very personal preference if somebody chooses an internal product or period underwear or even pads. I think what's exciting though to your, just to add a little bit around that demographic question is that we are seeing a huge uptick among especially younger consumers who are interested in trying reusables and well, obviously are trying them because there's so many of this, there's such growth in the, in the segment. But I think Suzanne, maybe you can help me with a stat from that Shelton group where something like 60% of And the people were in their sort of 20s and 30s for the most part had either tried or wanted to try a reusable product for their period, which is super like awesome. So that's exactly right. I mean, 59% to be more precise. But uh, yes, it's it's a, a very recent study and it really shows how things have evolved very quickly and that reusables are a category that people are paying attention to. That's amazing. I remember in some of our past conversations, your leadership in sort of nurturing others in the ecosystem and building leadership with others out there. This is something I notice a lot about female entrepreneurs is we don't really use the word competitor. Oftentimes we're very much collaborating. And I I remember a comment from some guy somewhere (laughs) around going to the first women's trade show in the US and he was like, I couldn't believe that all these people, all these women were sitting at a table together, helping each other with their businesses, you know? And I'm like, yeah, that's what happens in our world. Do you have any favorite stories of um, how you've been helped or how you've helped others in this space to uh, create a positive impact? Well, we have a huge practice of mentorship, the two of us. And what we used to do actually in like, we've, we've had several physical, you know, different offices and locations over time. And until this particular one where we need all the space, we have had other women entrepreneurs, you know, renting out spare offices and coming and just coming and going, even, you know, randomly co-working and hanging out with us. So we've done a lot. And also, I mean, through CEO, holy, like it's, I'm just writing about it right now for my book, Vicky. And it's so, it's so amazing. Like you, you have given 
I think that something that for many was an informal, you know, or maybe through, you know, one or two women's smaller organizations or something doing mentorship, but like you've created this entire web of relationship where, um, we're able, and thanks to the Zoom calls, interestingly, are making a huge difference in that, those weekly calls and that kind of thing. So, and just as a bit of a comment, though, in terms of in back to the menstrual space, there are some leaders, I think, who have kind of come from a more traditional masculine business orientation who are showing up in the space and just still going, I'm a disruptor and I'm going to, you know, this, and I was the first one and, you know, this very ego-driven kind of practice. And which is a bit disappointing because this space, I think, offers a very unique opportunity for that type of more inclusive, more collaborative leadership to take place across the board. And just because of the nature of what we do, because it's, it's so personal and it's so intimate and, and touches so many different social justice and environmental points. And I don't have a specific story to share, Vicki, but I will say that even in our menstrual category, we are colleagues and talk with our, we call them compatriots. We don't call them competitors. We talk with them quite regularly. And I think that is the exception where we do know what each other is doing. And we do call each other up and go, did you see that story about, you know, this particular chemical or challenge or controversy? And and what do you think about it? And so we, we have a relationship where we talk with our competitors and compatriots because we're all in this for the same reason, which is to create better options for people who menstruate and we're learning from each other. And I think that because we share that common goal of trying to make it better, we don't kind of treat each other as, as sort of, you know, enemies as traditional competitors might. Yeah. It's interesting because your names always come up in BC. You know, we have entrepreneurs applying and they're like, how'd you hear about us? And it's like Madeline and Suzanne, Suzanne and Madeline, (laughs) like all the time, because you're constantly out there encouraging others. And that whole environment of like how you are supporting people around you and living your values and being very activist to your original words, Mad, that really, I mean, that creates followership, right? And it creates a really strong connective tissue in your local communities, which then strengthen your business because if someone's looking for something, they'll be like, hey, you know, go and check out aisle. It's so simple. Get in relationship with others, care about your customer and things grow versus this, all of the analytical transaction data points around things. Like how do great businesses survive, especially in times of COVID by being in deep relationship with their customers? Do you want to talk a little bit about how, what your response to COVID has been and how it's been going? Yeah, well, we, like all businesses, had to really retreat and figure out a game plan to make sure that we were going to survive and cash flow was going to keep coming through. And we're very privileged and lucky to be a primarily e-commerce direct-to-consumer business that we have been able to weather that storm quite well. And then once we got over that kind of hump of, okay, we're going to be all right, then we began to wonder how could we be of service. And we happened to have a colleague who just simply reached out within about two weeks and said, hey, this might seem a very far out question, but would you be willing to shift some operations to make cloth masks? And long story short, we just jumped right into it and said, yes, let's do that. And we were fortunate that the production partners that we work with were willing to do that. And in addition to being supported through the community with a GoFundMe campaign, we were encouraged by folks who said, yeah, we would actually buy them and, and be willing to pay for them. And I wanted to know, well, would you be willing to pay enough where we would be able to donate one? And folks said, yes, we'd be willing to. So our cloth masks are available on our website when by buying 
one for yourself, you're financing the production of another one to be donated. It's just been a really interesting exercise for us because it was a bit of a distraction from our regular operations, but it was something that was so in line with our values around being in community and finding ways to be not just a company that makes a product, but a company that cares about its community. And so how else can we help during this time? And so it gave us a place to kind of rally around COVID and saying, we're not just surviving, we're actually supporting our community. And that to me was very much in line with who we are as as a business. Yeah, I would add that it was that local manufacturing relationship that I was discussing earlier that made this all possible in the first place, because otherwise it would have taken too long. And also the quality of the relationship was such that they wanted to work with us. They were like, okay, let's, let's do this. And, you know, let's design some prototypes together and let's figure this out. And so it was a very, very collaborative stuff built on that that relationship on that social capital. The other thing I would say about it is that, so the person who originally reached out to us is the executive director of an organization that serves youth experiencing homelessness in Vancouver. And so the idea was the masks were for frontline service workers working with that population. And then from there, looking around in Vancouver, so where we are, we're in East Vancouver, very close to the downtown east side, which for listeners who aren't from Vancouver may not be familiar with it, is a community that is so it's marginalized. It's rough. It's like there is a huge population there struggling with addiction and experiencing homelessness and violence and racism and just a huge ton of challenges. So we got involved with a local organization that was specifically handling the response to COVID in that community. And so I think now we've distributed, I've, I was just finishing packing another thousand in the, um, in the office, but about 3,500 masks we've sent out to individuals working in some way, shape or form on the front lines of COVID in the downtown east side of Vancouver. So again, a super local response to, you know, it's, it really is do what you can with what you've got where you are. And, you know, normally in the past, we've looked, our consciousness around menstrual equity and menstrual health has been very global. And that's something we can speak about as well. But, you know, when it came to COVID, it was like, let's just give our all for what we can do with what we've got right now, right here. So you have had a a business that has continued through a couple of decades working on menstrual health before anyone wanted to talk about it. (laughs) And before we really had language around it and there was just shame and everything attached to it. I'm sure there still is all over the place. But there's just been so much evolution in this space from the language to just the social conditions that we're living in. As we're sort of looking forward you know, inclusion and gender and some of the challenges you're facing, like what are some of the really interesting things going on right now that you need to navigate as leaders in the space around gender and inclusion? Well, I think the most current thing that I'm working through is also considering race and considering all the systemic problems that have been designed by colonial systems to be honest, just struggling with how to actively try and break down some of those structures that created that in the first place, because we are a for-profit company. And so we do operate in the capitalist system. And there's many pieces of it that just don't work and are um, continuing to perpetuate those systems. So I'm being challenged by looking at the way 
we work and finding some degree of support and hope in being part of the B Corp community. So as a B Corporation, we're part of a movement that has taken a different look at capitalism and said that it's not just about the bottom line, but it's looking at community and who you're serving and your employees and how you pay them and how you hire and the supply chain, which is very traditional capitalist models and governance, which is very traditional capitalist models. But what can we do beyond that? I don't have the answers, but I am very, very curious and interested in being a part of a community that wants to redesign it at a time where it totally needs to be burnt down and rebuilt. And it's, it's a hard thing to do because it's not going to happen overnight and you need to work within the system that currently exists and decide which things we're dismantling and which things we're fixing and putting back together. And it's just going to be really difficult, but I, I feel like there's a large community who wants to work on it together. Yeah, it's interesting because I wonder if it's, it's really impossible to know anything, but there's this professor Galloway, I don't know if you know Scott Galloway, I've listened to his stuff on the weekends. He talks about how every week during COVID is a, is a year. We're like fast forward a decade already. People are talking about UBI. Anti-racism is like here. <laughs> People have words around systemic inequalities and are starting to see the structural challenges that we're facing. Like the curtain has been not only pulled back, but like filmed in front of your eyes every day with like 17 headlines, right? So it's, it's amazing. It's really hard to tell if we're in like the greatest transformation that's ever happened on the planet, right? Like it's just every kind of trend happening. So I find myself kind of going, oh, it's going to take a long time. Well, what if it doesn't? Like, what if actually this is it, right? And so what are the levers and what do you step into? So it's, who knows? Uh, none of us have a, have a clue of really where that's going. Well, and I want to add that I don't know how customers are going to respond to it. And I don't know how investors are going to respond to it. And I don't know how lenders are responding to it. And so it's, this really weird space of how do you put yourself out in the world and be held accountable to things that you believe in, but not sure how to fix them at the same time. You know, we're being held accountable, not just by our customers, but our employees are challenging us all the time and saying, how do we do better? And I'm like, good question. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's figure it out. So yeah, absolutely. What would you like to do about that? Yeah. Let's, you know, together. That's, that's powerful. This is a time more than ever where you've got to be super grounded in your values and committed. And so having deep integrity, having deep authenticity and being deeply committed to social justice, even if it's going to cost you as someone with privilege to listen and not, not assume anything, not feel like you need to be right. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a time just to be responsive to people's voices that haven't been heard typically. I know for us, uh, our commitment around trans inclusion and non-binary individual inclusion has been a huge, huge part of that. And I think that's just going to keep going. Like gender in and of itself as, as a notion, as a construct is so fascinating. And, and I'm very proud to say that even though it did took Suzanne and I a couple of years, this, we had a particular staff member who took the time to educate us in like starting in like 2009, 2010, we were pretty early on switching out the language around who menstruates and, and taking a stand for that kind of thing as well. But I'm, I just feel like almost, and just the excitement of watching it and then asking the question, how can we help? How can we support? As opposed to how can I benefit? How can I capitalize on this? It's like, how can we serve 
folks who have been underrepresented or underestimated, as Arlen Hamilton likes to use an expression for marginalized people that I find really lovely, and to serve those people and to empower those people. I'd actually like to end out on social impact because this is something that you have tracked for many years as part of your business success. And so could you just talk a little bit about the polluting nature of your industry (laughs) before your innovation and the innovations of others coming along in this space and just like how much waste occurs in this space? Just for people to get a sense of the stats. I'm sure you have these memorized 400 ways, uh, forwards and backwards. (laughs) In North America alone, over 20 billion pads, tampons, and applicators go into landfills every year. A single menstruator will probably go through between 10,000 and 15,000 of those themselves, spend up to $5,000 in their lifetime because they're going to be menstruating between 30 to 35 years. We are very grateful that because we've had an impact because customers are using our product that over 20 million pads and tampons are being diverted a year because of our impact. And so we're having a small dent. And I think that our efforts over time are inviting others to join our space so that the reusable category is becoming a valid sector of the menstrual product category and people are paying attention. And so that that $20 billion number is going to start getting shaved down and people are going to start paying attention. And that hasn't the ripple effect of, you know, having less impact on wastewater and, you know, the chemicals that are going into the waste system. And we're really excited this summer, we're actually doing a full life cycle analysis of our products and comparing that to disposables. And we'll be able to share that with our customers so that when they actually buy the product, they'll see how much they're individual purchase is saving environmentally um, and on a greenhouse gas emission perspective so that it's not distant it's it's not one versus the other it's like you can see the impact immediately when they're making their purchase and i think that that connection needs to be happening more frequently than not when we make a choice about our products and whether it's packaging or the textiles that go into it, it's like we need to give people that information that they need to make good decisions going forward So uh, just on our closing note, then I have a, if you were going to each of you looking out to the future and knowing that there are lots of people listening to this who are wondering about how to make strategic decisions in their business, what has really been like the one or two most important things for you that have kept you going, motivated, on track? Mad, you talk a lot about like living your values and being very centered and grounded in it, which then allows you through the tough times to get through. So what would you end off by sharing with the audience. Yeah, thank you. Um, I love that. And I, I would say, Vicki, that it's a lot, I would say my version of following the energy, that wonderful CEO concept, it has to do with a feeling that I got way back in early days, in the early 90s, when I started making washable menstrual pads and period underwear for the first time and, and using them and trying them. And until that point, I just used tampons. It was like this huge revelation. Like it really was felt kind of miraculous. Like I just had a whole different appreciation for what my body went through and was doing. And I felt so much more connected to it and so much more conscious around it. And I just had this huge well of love and gentleness and desire to be kind to myself that I'd never experienced. Using the disposables just made me feel like my body was creating waste and something disgusting and horrible and yucky. And when I kind of got 
over that and past that. And that was the gift that using something reusable gave me was like this very gentle, it didn't need to be thrown away and it wasn't gross and it wasn't dirty. It was just something that my body was doing because it was healthy. And that feeling, I've never, ever, ever lost that feeling. And that is something, you know, it's my desire for anybody who menstruates to have that feeling and that sense of connection with themselves that I would say has, has, it transcends anything, any kind of organizational thing or brand or all the rest of it. It's, it's that feeling and wanting to share that with others. I will add that values have always grounded myself and have grounded the business and what IELTS stands for. But if I look at myself personally and speaking of someone in her fifties, I think mostly about what kind of legacy do I want to leave behind in terms of what things am I doing now that will have an impact in the future and a legacy, whether it's for a future entrepreneur or if it's for my family or if it's for the environment. I remember when I first met Madeline way back in 1999 and she invited me to join her at Lunapads and she saw the skill set that I had and she said, like, take your financial skills and become a Jedi Knight, you know, who wants to use them as tools for the greater good. And that's sort of what's been guiding me all these years is I have a certain skill set and I want to use them for the greater good and use it so that I can leave a legacy behind where I can feel proud when I'm ready to just drop all things and just watch the world go by and see it so and feel like, yeah, that was a really good use of my time. Thank you so much, you two. Love you both. I'm so grateful for the work that you're doing in the world. And it's been amazing getting to know you over the last five years. Thanks for your time today. We are in forever. <laughs> Thanks, Nikki. Likewise, yes, Vicki, you're a huge inspiration for both of us not to get to love fest on you, but um, you were a real driving force for where things have moved for us in the past five years. Thanks so much. Thank you, Vicki. Thank you for listening to the CEO.world podcast. If this conversation resonated with you, please share it with a friend and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. If you'd like more information about SheEO, please visit us at SheEO.world. That's S-H-E-E-O dot world.